Welcome back to this podcast about Noel Doherty. Who was Noel Doherty? Well, he's a name not well recognised these days, even among people who, even among historians who study their troubles, you know, full time, who really in depth know their troubles, know their uh, their modern Irish history. He, his name goes unremembered. So in this podcast, what I'm going to do is give a brief biography of him. What we do know about him, there's not many mentions of him in the sources. He remains a mysterious figure. We're going to look at his life. We're going to look at his impact on uh, loyalist paramilitarism, particularly in the uh, mid to late 1960s and the growth of of, uh, paramilitaries in that time. And we're also going to speculate a little bit on possible connections he has to um, British Israelism, um, intelligence agencies, both British and maybe even possibly South African, and also look at some of the connections of his associates, um, people he plotted with and, and planned paramilitary campaigns with. So without further ado, we'll dive into a, a little potted biography of him. Noel Doherty uh, was born in 1940. Uh, we're not sure where. Um, doesn't mention in the sources. But um, He grew up in a f- devout Protestant household. Uh, he was known as a, as a bit of a fundamentalist in school. Classmates remember him um, getting into fierce arguments with people over, over issues such as um, over creation and the nature of the virgin birth. Uh, he was a fundamentalist. Um, he read the Bible literally. He he truly believed the Bible was the inerrant word of God. It was not wrong. It was everything he read in the Bible was literally happened. Um, and as a result of this fundamentalism, he he found himself um, increasingly attracted to uh, to uh, this uh, firebrand preacher in the 1950s, called Ian Paisley. Um, he joined Ian Paisley's Free Presbyterian Church in 1956, and he soon became to be um, very closely associated with Ian Paisley. Um, Ian Paisley obviously liked him, obviously trusted him, um, and he he grew uh, cl- deeper and deeper into this, uh, into this kind of fringe uh, Protestant world. He was... Attracted to Paisley's fierce rhetoric and and Bible focused fundamentalism and his his uh, um, his opposition to the liberal tendencies within unionism at this point um, at this point in the in the beginning of the nineteen sixties we have Terence O'Neill as the prime minister of Northern Ireland who he was not popular with the more um, extreme fringe of loyalism. He's seen as um, a sellout, caving in the pressure um, of nationalist civil rights campaigns. Um, he's he wants to reform. He wants to change some of the you know the political institutions that that mould Northern Ireland to make it more inclusive towards Catholics. Um, 
which up until this point have been thoroughly excluded from from every level of government, every level of uh, influence within the civil service and council. He wanted to change that, but this was too much for many on the Protestant fringes, um, including Noel Doherty and Ian Paisley. Um, and I've, I've got a quote here um, from a 1999 book by Peter Taylor, Lloydness. Excellent book. If you can find it, um, pick it up. I think it's still pretty cheap. Definitely get into it. A few of uh, excellent quotes and stuff. Um, and Noel, Noel Doherty uh, gave an interview, a very rare interview. As far as I'm aware, the only interview he's ever done. And Peter Taylor asked him why he was attracted to Ian Paisley in the 50s and 60s. What appealed an old Doherty about Ian Paisley uh, and this was his reply I quote his fundamentalism greatly appealed to me, he was forthright and he wasn't afraid I saw him as a true disciple of Christ he funded the message forth in a way that brought joy to my heart and I was spellbound by his oratory there we go end quote So we can see not only Paisley's, it's mainly Paisley's uh, religious message, which drew Noel Doherty to him, his fundamentalism, his uh, his uh, fiery rhetoric. Um, and around the same time as uh, Doherty's uh, getting more and more involved with uh, Paisley-like religion and politics. He also joins the B specials, the um, exclusively Protestant um, reserve police force of Northern Ireland, which has since got an awful reputation for its role in uh, the outbreak of troubles. Many B specials um, joined in mobs, burning down Catholic houses. Um, it was known for being uh, rapidly sectarian. Um, Catholics and nationalists were were terrified by them. Um, but at this time, if you were uh, an upstanding Protestant man in Ulster, you joined the B-Specials. It wasn't unusual. It wasn't um, a sign of extremism, really. Um, it was a thing everyone did. It was just part of the society. So we can't glean too much from the fact that he, he joined at such a young age because it was pretty normal. And so we see by the late 1950s, um, Doherty had, had risen to preeminence within Paisley's inner circle. Um, Paisley at this time had been doing tours of the country, of Northern Ireland, preaching, preaching his uh, never-changing message that, you know, there can be no reform, there can be no concessions to the Catholic nationalist majority, there can be no reconciliation between Protestant churches and the Catholic Church, because any step in that direction um, leads to Dublin, and through, you know, leads to Dublin, leads to United Ireland. And the United Ireland means that Protestants in Ulster will be under Rome rule. That was Paisley's favourite phrase, Rome rule. 
be under the yoke of the of the Pope of the Vatican. Um, the Protestants, you know, there's fears of Protestants and being suppressed. Um, probably unfounded, to be honest. You know, most people say it's unfounded. It was a very fringe idea, but the religious passions ran strong uh, in Northern Ireland at this time. So, Old Doherty had risen to preeminence within Paisley's organisation. Um, at this time, Paisley had, um, in the late 1950s, he'd set up an organisation called Ulster Protestant Action, um, which was basically a, a, an organisation that acted as a vehicle for his political beliefs, his uh, hardline beliefs. And Noel Doherty had risen to, um, doesn't say in the sources, but near to the top, um, he was one of Paisley's right-hand men. So, he sat on the, uh, Noel Doherty sat on the executive of Ulster Protestant Action and was also responsible for running the Puritan Printing Press, which was um, a printing press owned by Paisley, obviously ran by Noel Doherty. He was a printer by trade. It's one of the few things we do know certainly about him. And uh, this printing house, among other things, published Paisley's newspaper, the Protestant Telegraph, which didn't run for very long, but... Um, was a key part of his uh, political machine. And so, as we go into the 60s, um, Northern, a key decade for Northern Ireland, a crucial decade for Northern Ireland, things are getting, getting more tense. Um, the, the civil rights marches by the nationalists, the civil rights campaign is gathering momentum. Uh, you know, Terence O'Neill is is making increasing overtures towards reform, both ecumenical reform and um, allowing more Catholic uh, representation in government. Still not a lot by any means, but he's he's moving on that road to reform. And many, many within the loyalist communities of Ulster, particularly areas, you know, County Down, um, County Antrim, uh, East Belfast, you know, these heartlands of loyalism, of, of militant Protestantism, uh, Protestantism, they're really not happy, and they are, they are angry, they're anxious, you know, they're, they're fearing what, what, what these reforms might lead to, the erosions of their privileges, the erosion of their faith, and you see, from the 1960s, you see increasing organisation uh, amongst this 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 uh, this loyalist fringe, and where Noel Doherty fits into it is that he seems to be, from what we can tell, one of the key figures in introducing paramilitary organisation um, and paramilitary attacks into this. Um, into this historical current. So, Paisley was also um, key in this. So in the mid-1960s, as all the tension rises, you've got civil rights marches getting met with, um, met with mobs, met with um, 
brutality by the police or riots um, and, and simmering tensions under the surface. Paisley forms an organisation called the Ulster Constitutional Defence Committee. Uh, from here on out, I'm going to call it the UCDC. Um, this is a bit easier to say. And the UCDC was set up, um, chaired by Paisley, seemingly on Paisley's initiative, um, but invited a lot of other hardline loyalist politicians and figures um, into its fold. And it was meant to act as a coherent um, organisation to oppose the, the liberalism of uh, Terence O'Neill's government and the reformist stance it was taken is meant to oppose that and uh, galvanise uh, loyalist resistance to any kind of reform. And beneath the UCDC, um, Paisley also sets up um, the Ulster Protestant U Volunteers, the UPV, um, which is, although not initially set up as a paramilitary organisation, um, Noel Doherty quickly rises to become to the top of it, and he is instrumental. This is where his, his story becomes interesting. Noel Doherty is instrumental in turning it into a paramilitary organisation. So this is around, we're in the mid-1960s here. Mid-1960s. Noel Doherty is the head of the UPV, this, this militant wing. And he begins forming it into cells and divisions. So we, we're starting to see early you know, paramilitary structures emerge here. And he also puts out feelers and begins networking. Um with other hardline loyalists, extremists, to source arms and explosives. Um, and at this point, it's probably best to talk about some of these other, briefly, talk briefly about some of these other loyalist figures, because they're, um, personally, I think they're fascinating. They're not, they haven't been studied. They haven't been studied in the historiography of the Troubles, and I think they... they they need to, and if anything, if we take anything away from this this podcast, um, it should be to, to research these figures, because there's a lot of unanswered questions which hang around their involvement, a lot of connections that can be followed up. Um, so two of these, um, two of the most interesting, but uh, also I would say unsavoury characters, um, Noel Doherty is associating with in this time in the mid sixties is um, John McKeague and William McGrath. Now, I won't go too in-depth into these uh, people's um, biographies or upbringings, but it's safe to say these two, these two men, uh, McKeague and McGrath, were, alongside Doherty, these three men were incredibly influential in the birth of loyalist paramilitarism. John McKeague um, founded the S the SDA, the Shankill Defence Association, 
which was um, one of the which was the largest uh, defence association of its kind before all uh, the local defence associations formed in 1968-69 by loyalists, by loyalist areas. They amalgamated in 1970-1971 into one organisation, the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association. Um, so John McKeague was the key thing in the SDA, which was the largest of these groups. So he has an important role in both um, the formation of the UDA, which should go on to become the largest paramilitary organisation in Western Europe. Um, and he also founded, he gets kicked out of the uh, UDA in the early 70s very quickly, for reasons we'll get into shortly. And he founds the Red Hand Commando, um, which is one of the most secretive and... Um, poorly understood um, par lawless paramilitary organisations um, extremely small and secretive it later become uh, become within the, the UVF's orbit but retained its own structure it's, it hasn't been studied it's, it remains a very uh, bit mysterious to this day um, so that's John McKeague William McGrath um, was a at this time in the remember in the mid nineteen sixties here. Paramilitary loyalism's on the rise. McGrath is leader of a, the founder and leader of a, uh, another obscure group called Tara. Named after the hill of Tara, uh, the the hill where the ancient high kings of Ireland got crowned. Um. Tala, despite being named after a hill in the Republic of Ireland and drawing on kind of Celtic, the, the older Celtic traditions of Ireland, was a loyalist organisation um, which espoused a, um, a version of British Israelism. Now, for those of you who don't know what British Israelism is, um, I'll forgive you because it's, it's been almost entirely forgotten today. Um... But Britishism, in a nutshell, was the idea, was the belief that the peoples of the British Islands were descendants from the ten lost tribes of Israel mentioned in the Bible. Um, so the implication of that is that the people of the British Isles are um, God's chosen people. Um, and that we, we, you know, we, we have a uniquely divine relationship with God. Um, it's a bit of a, it's a totally crackpot idea, um, and they've spent decades, decades, uh, trying to prove this link with, um, rather dodgy, uh, lang looks at language, um, such as ancient Hebrew and, and the extra Celtic languages, it's a bit, some dodgy archaeology as well, some not well, uh, not thorough archaeology, so, it's an interesting group has a lot of links to to, to so many different organisations, British Israelism. Um, it's a fascinating phenomenon and it deserves to be studied more, but unfortunately it, uh, it's not at the moment. But William McGrath, the founder of Tara, um, fellow hardline loyalist at the same time as, as uh, John Noel Doherty, sorry, He 
he's in the process of sourcing weapons, arming himself, um, aiming to find explosives uh, and possibly use them. Um, and the interesting thing about these two men, William McGrath and John McKeague, not only do they all found their own militant loyalist groups and play decisive roles in the importation of arms, explosives, the planning of terrorist acts. Along, along with Noel Doherty, this is where he fits in with this, this he's part of this trio of, of the organisers of loyalist paramilitarism in the 1960s. The rearmament of the, the extreme loyalist fringe. Um, William McGrath and John McKeague both, uh, I said earlier that they were unsavory people. Um, John McKeague was a, uh, was a, was a kind of closeted homosexual, um, with a preference for younger, younger boys, men, teenagers. There's allegations that that was the reason he, he got into loyalist paramilitarism in the first place, is that he, he enjoyed, uh, the company of, of teenagers. And that's part of the reason he was kicked out of the UDA, was that um, they labelled him a fruit. Um, we got to bear in mind, this was in the early 1970s, and it's a very conservative part of the world. Um, they kicked him out. The UDA command kicked John McKeague out. Um, I believe they also uh, killed his mother unintentionally. They firebombed his house and his mother was inside, and she died, sadly. Um, and he, he went off. Uh, because of allegations, because he was uh, sleeping with younger men and being openly uh, promiscuous. Uh, he went on, John McKeague went off and founded the Red Hand Commando, um, which again was formed initially in the early 1970s. It was just him and a group of his teenage followers, which um, to me sounds very suspicious. Um, you have to question his uh, motives there. I mean, they're either terrorist motives, either he wants to create a new group to kill Catholics, or he just wants to create a new group to have access to young boys. So neither option there is good. Neither of that comes out well. John McKeague would later be assassinated in uh, the early 1980s by the Irish National Liberation Army. Um... Something tells me I don't think many people mourned his loss. Um, William McGrath. Moving on to William McGrath, uh, the founder of Tara. Uh, this you know this quite this this small paramilitary grouping with with quite esoteric beliefs about um, uniting Ireland. I won't get into it here, but if you want to look up their beliefs, uh, do because they're they're really interesting. They've got very interesting ideas. Uh, William McGrath um, was arguably an even more of a monster than John McKeague. He was a uh, he was a sadistic paedophile, and he was implicated in a number of uh, uh, horrific um, sexual abuse cases. Um, particularly, he was the the master at um, King Cora Boys Home, which there was a, a notorious. Uh, child sexual abuse scandal there um, which 
there's been uh, lots of uh, which has has ties to a lot of people in the British establishment, a lot of people in the Northern Irish establishment, a lot of politicians and um, people in very high places were implicated in that. And he was the one of the main abusers there. Um, he would be later imprisoned for uh, sexual charges, um, but later released. So you're probably thinking at this point, well, why have I told you all this? Why have I gone on for this 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 massive tangent about these two uh, these two people, William McGrath and John McKeague? Well, I've gone on for that tangent because they both, John Noel Doherty was closely associated with them. He moved in the same circles. He shared the same views with these people. Namely, um, namely a deeply um, conspiratorial view of the world, of, of, of the big churches as well. Um, Noel Doherty was famous for regularly um, just espousing to anyone who listened, really, um, his kind of grandiose, elaborate conspiracies in which the Catholic Church, liberal Protestants, ecumenical organisations, communists and and figures in the British and Irish governments were all collaborating and covertly uh, scheming together to deliver Ulster over to the the rule of Dublin. In his eyes, what would be the tyrannical rule of Dublin. Um, These conspiratorial views were, were heavily influential on these two figures we were just talking about, William McGrath and John McKeague. Um, they both espouse similar conspiracy theories. Um, and they, they were both um, thoroughly entrenched in this kind of, this this network of, of uh, extreme loyalists and emerging paramilitaries. And we'll mention William McGrath and John McKee again when we get to the end of uh, Doherty's biographical section because they are, they're important in more ways than one, but we'll, go, but we'll get back to that. So anyway, we're in the mid-1960s. Doherty's trying to find arms, he's trying to find weapons and explosives um, and eventually does, not in huge quantities, but... F- um, through his networking, he he manages to source some explosives, um, namely some some gelignite. Um, bit unclear where they're from, but I think from things I've read, seems like they were from uh, mines in Scotland, and they were smuggled down there by uh, allegedly sympathetic Scottish miners. And so, armed with his explosives. He saw some explosives, he saw some arms. What's he going to do with these? And the answer, in the mid-1960s, from 1966, which is when Loyalist Paramilitaries really uh, makes itself known to the world, Doherty uh, seems to be at the centre of a bombing campaign. A now-forgotten bombing campaign, uh, completely overshadowed by what would later come in the, in the, in the Troubles. Um, but this small bombing campaign waged by um, loyalists it's hard to say which group exactly because at this time membership was fluid people flowed from each um, group whether it was Tara 
the also Protestant volunteers, the, the, the UVF, people move between them. Um, even Noel Doherty, in this period from 1966 to 1960, from the mid-60s, around 1966, uh, it was alleged that he also joined the UVF. So he's you can see he's got foot in two worlds. He's got... It's not clear-cut. You're not a member of an organisation. You'll, you'll, you'll be a member of several. But in this bombing campaign... Um, is waged in the manner of um, using false flag tactics. The loyalists, the UPV, the UVF, did not want people to cotton on that. It was loyalists doing the bombing. And they took great pains to make it look as if the IRA were doing it. It was, an, it was the beginning of a new IRA assault on a Ulster. You have to remember, 1966 is a very important year for, for republicanism. It's the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, and so there was a wide-scale anxiety and paranoia um, regarding the resumption of, a, of an IRA campaign to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. So fears were running high, and... Into this tense environment, you know, these bombs started going off. There was attacks on. I won't go in depth into the nitty-gritty of the bombing campaign, although I highly recommend you do more research on it because it's fascinating. But targets included infrastructure, reservoirs, um, pipelines, water pipelines, power stations, um, bridges... Uh, as well as symbolic targets such as um, statues uh, and stuff like that. Um, and it was in this bombing campaign, which, which generated a lot of publicity, but it was eventually uh, rumbled. Um, it was eventually discovered that it was loyalists carrying out this campaign. So it, it failed to... Um, it failed in its objective to increase the... To, well, it's difficult to say whether it failed in its objectives because part of, um, in one key area, it did succeed. And that was in the area of, to topple Terence O'Neill and his Liberal government. That was one of their main goals, and that it successfully did. Um, Terence O'Neill resigned uh, in 1968, I believe. Um... Because he just the groundswell of uh, feeling against it was just so strong, egged on by these bombings, he was seen as weak. He was seen as ineffective. So in that area, the bombing campaign worked extremely well, and Noel Doherty was the mastermind behind it, a figure right in the middle of all of this. So, but unfortunately, Noel Doherty did not um, maintain his freedom. To, to, to relish his, his success. In 1966, in October, he was arrested um, with along with three other men and he was charged with conspiracy to procure explosives. Um, he was sent down for this. He spent two years in Crumlin Road Jail and on his first day of um, imprisonment, um, Ian Paisley 
made a speech outside the, the jail where he um, expelled Noel Doherty from all Paisley, all his organisations, the, the UPV and the UCDC. He denied any knowledge of Noel Doherty's actions um, and essentially thoroughly uh, abandoned him and washed his hands of him, um, which is, for students of the Troubles, known as a, uh, a recurring theme with Ian Paisley throughout the Troubles of uh, of distancing, of whipping up people with, with fiery rhetoric and then distancing himself when they actually commit acts of terror. Um, so for Noel Doherty, you can imagine this man, Noel Doherty was entirely loyal to Ian Paisley. I don't think that was ever... Um, questioned the extent to which Noel Doherty um, informed Paisley of his of his uh, of his secret paramilitary organisations. Uh, it's debatable. We we will probably never know. Um, but you have to imagine for a man who like Noel Doherty who looked up to Paisley so much, he described him regularly as you know, our Moses, which is for a fundamentalist Christian that is one of the highest. Uh, praise you can give someone um to be abandoned like that to be just so uh, swiftly just done away with um for the cause he believed in and he thought paisley believed in enough to to go to violence um even though i don't uh particularly like you know i don't think not comes out well um from this story you can imagine how that would have felt it would have been galling and that might have been one of the reasons after he, he did this two years in jail and was released, um, he drops off the face of the earth. He he disappears from Northern Irish politics. No one knows where he went, um, which is very unusual. It's very unusual. Um, it's, it's one of the only people I can think of in the Troubles who, who just disappears like that from Northern Irish politics and there is exceptions actually and we're going to get into that because um, this is one of the most in uh, one of the biggest mysteries about Nordor is where did he go and why did he leave after being so being at the heart of the rebirth of loyalist paramilitarism he just simply he just simply vanishes he's so integral in these early days, before the troubles really gets going, but then when the troubles start, he's out. He leaves. What could be behind this? The only other people, only other figures that come to my mind that disappear so suddenly and so completely from Northern Ireland, um, are figures such as um, Steak Knife. Um, the IRA, the the extremely high level agent within the IRA, um, now alleged to be uh, Freddie Scappatici. He's a, uh, the highest level informer within the IRA. He disappears from the province completely. And to me, this disappearance of Noel Doherty and his 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 uh, you know his complete vanishing uh, really smells like smells to me like um, the involvement of intelligence agencies probably MI, maybe MI5 maybe MI6 it, it seems to me it's got intelligence fingerprints all over it and it gets more interesting when 
uh, rumours start swirling around where he's gone. Now, we don't know this for certain, but rumours in Northern Ireland swirl around that he's emigrated to Rhodesia or South Africa. Which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, obviously, at this time, 70s, 80s, um, both Rhodesia and South Africa were um, ruled by racist, right supremacist regimes. Um, and to to go back to the and South Africa in particular um, has a hist- apartheid era South Africa has a history of um, covertly supporting arming loyalism one of the few international allies that paramilitary loyalism had um, the IRA had, had Gaddafi backing them uh, the loyalists had uh, South African intelligence um, at this point it's called BOSS Bureau of State Security so this is where we verge into you know speculation, um, but it could be possible that Noel Doherty continued his work for the, the uh, paramilitary loyalist cause by travelling to South Africa and may potentially acting as some kind of conduit or contact over there um, with South African intelligence. Um, or Rhodesian intelligence even, but we know he's, he sets up a printing press in South Africa in the 1980s, um, which doesn't really seem too significant. Um, then again, you'd be not sure, we're not sure about all of this, but the fact they meant, that of all places, he's rumoured to have gone to South Africa, um, and in light of South Africa's later... Um, arming of loyalists in the 1980s they 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 uh, dropped off crates of i don't know how they actually sent them over but they they delivered um grenades pistols um assault rifles to the loyalists so that's an, it's an interesting connection it's an interesting link um and it's not the only link to south africa among this early uh cabal of of loyalist paramilitaries william mcgrath the uh the man we spoke of earlier who founded Tara um, he travelled to South Africa quite regularly and in fact he looked and Rhodesia and he he went there for the purposes of, of trying to secure arms I'll be not sure if he was successful probably not um, but there was also ties to Rhodesia with William McGrath and his, his group um, two members of Tara went to fight in the Rhodesian army um, during the Bush War there. Um, we aren't sure what happened to them. Uh, we don't know if they made it back or he stayed there. Um, but it's interesting just to speculate on on why he disappeared so completely um, and yet goes to... Uh, goes to a part of the world which has strong links to loyalism. And um, I think there is a potential uh, intelligence link there. Uh, but again, this is, just, uh, this is just speculation. This is just speculation at this point. So, Noel Doherty. He's, uh, 
he's carried out a bombing campaign. He's gone to jail for it. He's fled the country. He's possibly living in South Africa, possibly living in Rhodesia. No one's heard from him for decades. When he gives his only TV interview after 20, 30 years of silence, Peter Taylor, the excellent troubles journalist, manages to track him down in the 1990s. And he's living in England at this point. Um, and then that after that interview in the late 90s, uh, you don't hear anything else from him. No, doctor, he doesn't talk about the troubles. He doesn't engage with commemorating it. He doesn't engage uh, visibly in the peace process, as far as we know. You don't know if he, he had... Uh, he didn't come out and campaign for it. He just uh, maintained his privacy. Um, and as far as we know, he, he died. He died in... Uh, he died in the early noughties. Um, he passed away at a good age. But to to the end, the amount of secrets he must have taken down with him, the amount of mysteries that remain about his exact role, his connections. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions surrounding old Doherty. Um, but I hope this podcast, this this sum up, this brief, somewhat rambling, uh, biographical look at him encourages you to to research him more and research this early period of loyalism because there's a lot happening a lot of very important uh trends are falling into place for the rest of the troubles um and you this paramilitary is getting formed that will last for 20 30 years you know long live that's still with us today um so i think it pays to to look at this period more closely and, and see exactly who was behind these these organisations, what were their purposes, what were the views of the people who who founded them. So I hope you enjoyed, and I'll, uh, I'll leave it there.